Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. My hypothetical friend, Jim, is an atheist. He doesn't like the idea of government-sponsored religion. Jim recently heard about a town in California that erected a 20-foot electrically illuminated cross in its main public park. Jim doesn't live in that town, but he's offended by the idea that the town government would do that, and he thinks the cross violates the First Amendment's prohibition on government establishment of religion. Can he sue the town on that basis? And if not, who can? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Andrew Hessek, the judge John J. Parker Distinguished Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Strategy and Planning at North Carolina Law School. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Can Jim sue the town? Uh, probably not in federal court. So Article 3 of the Constitution, it gives the federal courts the power just to hear cases and controversies. And there are a number of doctrines that implement that provision, but one of them is standing. And standing, it ensures that only people with real personal stakes in a dispute can bring suit in federal court. And the basic test is that the plaintiff has to have suffered or be about to suffer uh, an injury that is concrete and particularized to him. And here he would say that Jim doesn't have that kind of injury. Why is that? He feels harmed, right? Yeah, no, no doubt he feels harm. And I think we can think about two, two types of injuries, right? One, we could say like, well, he has an interest in the government sort of complying with the law, obeying the First Amendment, right? And the problem with that kind of injury, saying that they're not complying with the First Amendment, is that um, it's that it's not concrete, it's too abstract, right? Now, another way we might frame the injury is we might say, hey, wait, look, Jim has a concrete injury because he's really upset. He's emotionally upset that the government is, uh, is breaking the law. And he, he has a, you know, and there's a feeling of offense, that's real. But the problem here is one of particularization, right? It's, we say this feeling of offense, it's no different from what other people who share his beliefs would also feel. So his injury isn't particularized to him. Instead, he's pursuing what the Supreme Court has called a generalized grievance. It's a sort of a harm shared by a broad group of society. So who would then have a particularized injury? Yeah, so we would have to find someone whose offense uh, stems from something that's much more personal. So for example, imagine Jane, uh, she feels the same way as Jim about uh, the First Amendment, but she actually lives in the town and she goes to work every day and maybe she has to drive past the cross or maybe she works in a store that overlooks the cross, right? And it's a constant reminder of the offense that she feels, right? So that would be much more particularized. She's experiencing that injury uh, in, a, in a way that's different from other people across the country. It's not just the offense of knowing the violation of the First Amendment. It's having to see it and experience it every day. So Jane has standing, but Jim would not. Why does the law distinguish between the two? Why have a standing requirement that prevents Jim from suing? Well, there are a bunch of different reasons. One of them is that the 
concrete, real injury, can, uh, it can improve the quality of decision-making. And the idea is that a plaintiff with real stakes in a dispute is more likely to be a better advocate. And also, courts faced with sort of the real potential consequences of its decisions um, is going to make the court more careful in deciding a case. So another reason it's closely related is that um, these standing requirements, they help ensure that the people who are most affected by the litigation are the ones who get to determine how and whether to pursue their claims. So we can be pretty confident that Jane is really interested in this particular dispute because of her personal experiences. But it's less clear for Jim, right? He might be interested in the case just because he cares about separation of powers and he's not, for, I mean, separation of church and state, sorry. Um, and he's not particularly uh, concerned about this cross, right? This particular cross in town. And the problem is if Jim can litigate the case, you know, the, the results will affect Jane, right? Um, and Jim might not litigate the case the same way as Jane. He might make different arguments or maybe he'll be less persuasive in court because he hasn't seen the cross. He doesn't feel it every day and he can't convey to the court the same level of offense that someone like Jane would feel from seeing the cross every day. And how the case turns out when Jim litigates it, it could affect Jane. The court might say this cross is constitutional. But um, you know, the really big reason I think uh, is, is separation of powers. Uh, because the federal courts can only hear cases and controversies, they overstep their constitutional authority when they issue legal rulings in matters that aren't, you know, that aren't really disputes by the parties. So federal courts are there to resolve actual disputes. They're not there to be sort of just general overseers of the constitutionality of government action. We talked a little bit about the requirements of a concrete and particularized injury. What other requirements of standing are there? Yeah, there are a few other. So, um, so in addition to the ones that you just mentioned, the plaintiff also has to show that the injury is fairly traceable to the defendant's conduct and that uh, the court is um, able to remedy the injury through a judgment. So the fairly traceable requirement, it can come up when the injury, when there is an injury, but it's just hard to tell if it's because the, of the defendant's misconduct. So take, for example, um, a landowner who owns beachfront property, right? And his property is getting smaller and smaller as sea levels rise. Now, he might sue a nearby power plant and say, power plant, it's your emissions that are causing uh, global warming, right? They're contributing to global warming and that's um, causing sea levels to rise. Now, maybe he's right, right? But he would have to show it, right? He would have to show that this, that the rising sea levels are attributable to this particular power plant's emissions, right? And that can be really difficult. What, what happens if no one has standing? Yeah, so it is possible to think of situations where no one might have standing. So um, take, for example, our coins. Our coins say, uh, in God we trust on them. Now you could imagine Jim, um, he might sue on the ground if he thinks that that motto, that in God we trust, violates the establishment clause. Um, now he's probably not going to have standing to sue because, um, you know, his his offense at that slogan on the coin is the same is the same offense felt generally across the community. It'd be a generalized grievance, right? And basically, everyone else in the country is going to be in the same boat. They're all going to be suffering the same type of injury. 
Now it is possible, right? We could imagine um, that maybe someone at the US Mint would have standing. Maybe they um, experience this injury in a particular way because they're involved in actually printing the coins or something like that. Um, but you know, it, it's also possible that there's no one at the Mint who, who feels that way, right? So, it's, so we could imagine a circumstance where no one would have standing to sue in a particular case. Now, maybe you think this is bad because it means that the courts won't give an authoritative answer to legal questions. And it could even result in the continuation of conduct that does actually violate the law. Maybe this does violate the Establishment Clause. But on the other hand, we do have to remember that federal courts are not the only institution that are responsible for policing the government and making sure that we obey the Constitution. We live in a democracy. Um, we have other members of government and we have elections. If the citizens care enough about the issue, they can elect lawmakers who will, uh, who will change the law. I mean, the big point if we step back is to say, look, you know, federal courts are not the only answer. They're not the only ones who are responsible for upholding the law. Does standing apply in state court too? Yes, but I should start by saying only the federal courts are bound by the Article Three standing doctrine that we've been talking about. The state courts are governed by their own state constitutions, uh, and they're not subject to the Article Three restrictions that we've been talking about. So these state constitutions, they have their own standing requirements. Um, and in many states, the standing requirements are similar to the standing requirements uh, in, in federal court. But other states have, uh, have broader standing um, they recognize sometimes these generalized grievances and they let citizens bring suit when they're upset about, about things. That, that's in some states. So far as I know, there are no states that have narrower standing than the federal courts. Well, Andy, uh, thanks so much for helping us understand standing doctrine. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.